When I log into my bank account from my laptop, I first enter my banking password. Then the bank sends a text message to my phone with a unique code, and I enter that code into my computer to finish the login. This login process is called two-factor authentication. I'm proving my identity by entering my banking password, the first factor, and I'm validating that I am in control of my phone, the second factor, by receiving that text message. But in order to log in from my laptop, I need to be in control of my laptop. So the laptop itself is a factor. With the laptop and my password, I have two factors. I might not actually need the phone as a factor. Praneet Sharma is the CEO of Keyless, a product that moves two-factor authentication into the browser. Praneet joins the show to discuss how all kinds of authentication work. Multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and YubiKey. We use this discussion of authentication methods to help explain why it might actually make sense for some people to be doing two-factor authentication without taking out their phone. We also explore recent security breaches like Target, Equifax, and Yahoo, and the industry of security software that is sold to developers. I see giant banners for security software companies every time I go into the San Francisco airport. And uh, Praneet, help explain to me some of the products that these kinds of companies are actually selling. Praneet has joined the show in a previous episode to talk about advertising fraud, and he also works with my good friend Shalin Dar at Method Media Intelligence. They are combating ad fraud, and uh, this is not a paid spot, but if you're interested in checking out uh, Method Media Intelligence, they are looking to hire right now, and I just love those guys. So you could email them, jobs at methodmi.com. Let's get on with this episode. Praneet Sharma is the CEO of Keyless. Praneet, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about Keyless. We talked last time about some stuff in advertising fraud, and hopefully later on, we can catch up on how you're doing at Method Media Intelligence. But we're talking about your other company today, which is Keyless. And I want to give people an educational walkthrough that leads them to the motivation for you starting Keyless. Let's start with the simplest form of authentication, which is username and password. When I log in with a username and password, what is happening on the client and what is happening on the server? So what's happening with the username and password? You've probably noticed input fields within you know any sort of web page. And what's happening is that input field is actually that form is actually posting to a server and actually taking that, you know, that string of characters and actually validating against the database. In its simplest form, that's what it is. What actually happens on the database side is the password is actually hashed. And what that means, it's actually obscure to the actual people who, you know, control the database. So you can't really, you know, I can't just leak a database of passwords and, you know, steal everyone's passwords. So that's one important notion to actually consider. And how do corporations manage the password data once I've given it to them? That very much depends on how they choose to manage it. A lot of the issues actually stem from developers actually not considering, you know, what type of hashing algorithm they're actually using. Are they hashing at all? Which is uh, very concerning because everything is kind of in raw text. Um, that's very much determined by how they choose to do that. There's no sort of transparency around like, 
hey, this is the type of hashing we use for our passwords. Have you ever kind of considered, you know, when you log into Blue Shield or, I mean, you know, any sort of uh, insurance website or let's say any sort of, uh, you know, media website, there's no kind of indication on this is how we hash our passwords and it's secure based on these requirements. Yeah, Troy Hunt has published a number of reports on this companies that are just storing their passwords in plain text, sometimes in places where there's some open ability to read those passwords back, and it can be, yeah, you know, there's yeah. just, just gaping <laughs> vulnerabilities in, in some systems. Absolutely. And I think it really much uh, stems from how they're stored, but also how that authentication system works. And if we're talking about just plain old usernames and passwords, the most common way of actually kind of uh, breaking these systems, since it's just a doorway, imagine the analogy I use is just, you know, a lock and a key, right? And there's a doorway to a house. And some smart systems actually try to limit the number of events, the number of failed events, you know, you have in authentication. But there are many occasions where not only are the passwords stored in raw text, but there's many cases where you can try as many times as you want. And that lends itself to automation. And where, wherever you can have automation, especially in a doorway, is where you can start kind of breaking these things open, you know, in a scalable fashion. And then we kind of consider that a lot of people want memorable passwords. And memorable usually means simple so they usually, you know, pick, you know, one, two, three, password, ABC, uh, very, very weak kind of passwords that are easily kind of, they're crackable, but also they pick passwords that are very much related to them. So with some clever social engineering, if I knew your birthday, if I knew you, you know, your hometown, your dog's name, you know, your mother's maiden name, these sort of features can actually narrow down you know, what your password might be. And the search space for that uh, kind of brute force attack, you know, goes down, right? So it, it actually makes it way more efficient. And if I can hit something, you know, thousands and thousands of times a second, the chance I'm actually going to break it is very, very high. How are those brute force attacks implemented? Do they distribute it among a bunch of different IP addresses so that the server can't recognize that Oh, all of these logins, this this dictionary attack logins, they're coming from, you know, a bunch of different places. That could be the case, but sometimes you don't even need that. And again, we've, we've had many conversations about, you know, ad tech and how they try to throttle IPs and people use botnets and proxies to actually uh, have a diverse array of IPs. Usually with some authentication pages, that really doesn't matter. And then you have to consider kind of the development teams that are actually controlling these environments. Is that something they want to annoy themselves with? Do they want to actually consider this and actually code that in Nginx or, you know, their web server or their application architecture anyways? It really depends on how much they've thought about this. With more sophisticated, you know, uh, and more secure authentication gateways, you know, that is kind of a, a measure they use. It's IP throttling, right? You can't send more than 10 requests per second from this IP. So very, very similar to how other bots or botnets work, except they're very focused on just like an input field. So they're very, very simple. But usually what they do is iterate through just common strings that people use, right? Like uh, if you look at your keyboard right now, the QWERTY keyboard, I mean, there's human behavior is very, very simple. So when it comes to just passwords, like we might just pick characters that are next to each other. So that makes it a little faster for the actual bot. 
Again, there's also words, you know, common English words that people might just use for passwords. So again, the search space gets limited from there. And then there's, you know, certain things like, uh, you know, proper nouns, uh, like city names, all these other things that are actually incorporated. Very rarely do you see someone that has a very, very obscure password, right? Like it's uh, just an obscure string of characters. Safari actually tries to generate some for you. You know, they, they recommend passwords when, when you're first filling it out. And you might notice that it makes no sense. It's meaningless, but it's also very hard to memorize. So they store it in, you know, keychain. But very rarely do you ever see humans just use that because it's hard to remember. I mean, our brains aren't configured that way. So for a bot, the search space is actually quite small when it comes to common passwords. When we authenticate with our username and password, we're demonstrating that we have the possession of a key. And most keys can be stolen or copied. So we have two-factor authentication. Yes. How is two-factor authentication? Well, and I think most of the listeners know what two-factor authentication is. It's I log into something from a, a strange IP address, so I get a text message sent to my phone, and it verifies that I am in the possession of my phone. The phone is the second factor. The first factor is the computer that I'm logging into, hence two-factor mm-hmm. authentication. More generally, this is multi-factor authentication. On a technical level, how is two-factor authentication implemented? So, great question. Um, I think, first and foremost, it's good to go over just authentication and you know being something you know, being the username and password that we just discussed, uh, something you have, which is a phone usually, or a key, you know, like a key generator, and something you are, which is a biometric signature. It could be fingerprint, but now with you know face ID, there's also your your eyes and your your facial structure. Those are kind of like the three dimensions of this. When it comes to implementation of MFA, uh, there's different sort of scenarios. There's one, there might be just mandated MFA for every authentication event or every kind of transactional event that requires kind of a, you know, a second factor. Uh, Think about a bank transaction that's, you know, of a certain amount. Your bank will actually send you a text message to confirm that amount for, you know, every transaction sometimes. But when it comes to authentication, uh, multi-factor authentication and its implementation, it's usually just an extra step. So you'll have, you know, the initial one where you'll check username and password. You'll check it against hopefully a strong, strongly hashed, you know, database and uh, or uh, stored database, and you'll actually check against that. You know, that's fine. That passes. And then you'll have a second step. You know, it's usually a redirect where it's like, okay, we either send you a text message, enter that code, and we'll check that code for this duration of time. So one thing to note about multi-factor authentication is that code isn't really permanent. It expires. Uh, It's usually 30 to 60 seconds. It could be a text message. It could be an app on your phone that, you know, is generating this signature every 60 seconds based on some code. Or it could be a key generator that you actually have on your keychain. Right. And you've seen the RSA tokens and hopefully people have seen those and, you know, people lose those all the time. But those are actually generating those time based six digit codes that you can actually input as your second factor. So that's pretty much it. It's just kind of an extra barrier from the implementation standpoint. It's actually quite simple. You just hit another endpoint to validate against this for this user for this current time span. So it's actually very simple. There are many services that actually abstract this notion and, you know, allow you to actually build it into your web service and it 
it actually you know strengthens security quite a bit. But the annoying part is users have to actually configure it, and a lot of users are lazy. But then a lot of users actually lose that second factor. Um, it's quite common. And authentication, the worst points in authentications are, are just in a business scenario where you experience a lot of lockout, where someone cannot access their computer for you know, 24 hours or more. Uh, there's a lot of hoops and hurdles to kind of prove that you are you again. right? So a lot of multi-factor authentication scenarios involve just backups and resets and everything. And that's where you know developers also have to kind of incorporate that into their web architecture. And again, this can be all abstracted if you use a you know third-party service. You know those are great, but there are instances where you know again being the le- there are very legacy providers that have actually done this themselves and they might have misconfigured it or you know they've made it a, a, a giant pain for the actual user to kind of reconfigure multi-factor authentication. Those little RSA dongles that you attach to your keychain and you press a button and it generates a new code that you can use as your second factor. I've worked at places where they make you have one of these little key dongles in order to log in remotely. I don't understand why I can't just use my phone as the second factor. Is there a reason that they give you these dongles and they require you to have it to log in remotely? There's no real reason. Your phone can generate those codes. I mean, the the algorithm that generates it is just, it's very similar. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just a legacy mandate. Maybe they have a deal with, you know, this dongle provider. You know, know, there's also politics when it comes to security. There's a ton of politics when it comes to security. But you don't need those. Your phone can serve as that generator. And You've seen uh, cases where these SSOs have actually been introducing apps that will just do all that for you. And one is they'll just push. They have like push notification type uh, functionality where they'll just kind of send it over instead of you having to manually type it in. So they've made that a huge convenience, except you do still see the mandates where here's a key generator. It might be because, you know, that's just the way things are. Or there is a very strict BYOD policy. They don't want any sort of malicious, you know, app actually interfering with this push notification and intercepting your, you know, code. There's there's a huge issue with just, uh, you know, the Android ecosystem, especially is just there's a lot of security vulnerabilities. So if you put a whole key generator on your phone and then let's say that gets compromised and your password's really easy to crack, then there's no point in having multi-factor authentication. It actually gets worse from there. So those also might be reasons where the key fob is so simple, it's just uh, you know, it's just a very high security scenario that they're trying to enforce. The single sign-on SSO acronym, that's referring to Facebook or Google single sign-on, and there's some other providers we can explore. And that's like where I use my Facebook or Google login credentials to log in anywhere, and I just have an app that I open up on my phone. Like I could have apps where I open it up on my phone and it says log in with Facebook and then I click on log in with Facebook. What's happening there during an SSO authentication? Well, th- that specific one, log in with Facebook and Google is what's OAuth. That's oh, OAuth. OAuth okay, right. That's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's transferable credentials for you know using one identity as another one. It's kind of similar to SSOs. SSOs actually use uh, SAML. It's another protocol. Uh, it's very similar. You know, there's there's certain providers that actually have are identity providers, 
and they can act on behalf of these services. So what SSOs do is abstract the notion of identity where you can log into 60 apps with just one identity uh, using SAML. So it's really convenient, again, because you don't have to remember all these different disparate passwords around everywhere. And you can log into Google, Facebook, uh, ADP, Salesforce, all these other things just with, you know, just one set of credentials or one set of, uh, you know, uh, one multi-factor solution. So that's the uh, SSO notion. Uh, it's similar to OAuth, but OAuth has just made it more convenient uh, to log in anywhere that is a third-party uh, accessible app that connects to Facebook or Google or Twitter. Is the uh, the OAuth notion, is that more of a consumer domain and then the SSO or the uh, SAML? Is it, we call it a S- is it SAML? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Is that more of an enterprise notion? or this? Uh, should, okay. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So consumers, the, the reason they built OAuth is just to spread, right? Like people don't have to keep signing up for things and also data sharing. So OAuth allows, uh, exposes all these other API endpoints that you can use to gather, you know, like friends of friends from Facebook or like interests or like from Google, it could be your email and other things. Um, OAuth is more for consumer and uh, consumer adoption, but for businesses to get consumers data you know, very, very easily from these uh, known providers, you know, where they spend a lot of time. For SAML and SSOs, that's very much an enterprise notion because there are many different apps that a business user might use from Salesforce to to Gmail to, you know, they might have other, you know, internal apps to Jive. And there's so many different apps that you have to kind of say, okay, either we can have people just try to remember everything and that's where things fall apart. Or we can just kind of bundle everything into this one catalog. The SSO provider like Okta, you know, will abstract everything and you can just kind of click, you know, you can authenticate, you know, using multi-factor, it's very secure. And then you can just kind of click on a, an app and it'll just kind of initiate this redirect and authenticate you on Salesforce or Gmail. So that's more for the enterprise because the, you know, the IT department just doesn't want to deal with 60 different credentials for 60 different apps. You know, it's an end by end problem for them. And they've, you know, in the past, they used to do this. And it just, there was just so much lockout. And there's just so many, you know, vulnerabilities that just pop up everywhere. You mentioned that security can become very political within an enterprise organization. What do you mean by that? Political as in just with anything. You know, it could be the people, it could be the tools that you use, it's the tools that you are willing to buy. But the thing about security is it it can be very obscure. You know, in any organization, you can have politics from sales to marketing, but you can have, you know, with these departments, you have more of an understanding, right? Like there's more of a general understanding of just human behavior and like this is the way, you know, people act in this organization and it's, uh, you can grasp grasp sort of the politics and why they occur in sales, marketing, even engineering. But when it comes to security, there's a lot of unknowns, right? There's a lot of, you know, like if I say hashing or encryption and the way things work, there's a lot of jargon that kind of pops up. There's also the intimidation factor. People like talking about security, but then they don't when it starts affecting them. And, you know, all this, all these bad things could potentially pop up. You know, it's just something you don't want to talk about. I remember, you know, working at companies where we would have trainings, they'd be for half an hour, and people just dreaded these half an hour trainings. But moreover, they just didn't get any of it. They were just like, <laughs> what does all this mean? Um, why do we, 
use the tools that we use. They were aware of all the breaches and all the threats and like just how much of an acute disaster a vulnerability can entail. But the thing is, the security professionals didn't make it easy for the individuals that didn't know anything about you know cybersecurity in general. They would use the same jargon. They would. It's more of like a fear-based kind of education. Uh, I know it's moving away from that to kind of be more welcoming to actually say, okay, this is security hygiene. But it's it's also kind of a, a well-guarded territory. Security people can be very territorial of like, this is what I maintain, and I'm an application security expert, or I'm like a you know just a general cybersecurity expert, and this is my domain. I don't want anyone interfering with this. It's just kind of this security, you know, internal security, you know, no pun intended, that they want to feel about their domain. So the incorrect way people have been going out about it in the community is actually just intimidating the hell out of people, mm. you know, saying like, this is going to happen to you and this could happen to you. And, you know, phishing is a real disaster and malware is everywhere. And it's the same thing where people just kind of want to forget about it. This is a normal human reaction to just be in denial, especially when it comes to technology. You know, they'll just not think about it. It'll never happen to me, right? And when it does happen, there's, you know, security experts come up with all these different products then. So that's why it gets political is just these products are very obscure, but their obscurity sometimes makes them, it makes them very, you know, quote unquote valuable and they can charge a lot of money for it. And sometimes you see organizations buy endpoint security or this type of solution and they have no idea what they just bought. You know, they're they're kind of wondering, like, what does this actually do for us? And, you know, have we tested this? Does anyone here understand this? And usually there's blank faces everywhere. Or you have an internal security team that is so convinced that this is the future of security and it's unbreakable. You know, there's nothing that's unbreakable in the realm of cybersecurity, especially on the web with all its protocols. So that's where it gets kind of political is just the intimidation uh, people buy tools based on, you know, either hype or sometimes they know the people that build those tools. So it's kind of like the silent handshake and just the general obscurity. I mean, there's just so much uh, technicality to it. Things are constantly changing. And then finally, I think it's just denial, right, from the general population of just like not actually thinking about it until it's a disaster. Whenever I'm walking through San Francisco airport, I see these huge ads throughout the airport. They sometimes they're on digital billboards or they're just these huge posters selling to enterprises who need the security. And more recently, they're selling not just the security, but the security plus the AI. And I oh. see these companies. <laughs> what are they selling? Do you have any idea? It's magic. It's magical. It will eventually work with enough data, you know, just provide us enough network information and it'll eventually work. I've seen visualizations, you know, these ideal visualizations at a conference of, you know, our AI security product. And it will dynamically learn what vulnerabilities, uh, you know, are surfacing in your intranet or your active directory, or just your connected instances, right, in your cloud Provided that, you know, you spend a year configuring it and then ideally we want this clean data and then ideally, you know, everyone knows how to use the tool and configure it and everyone follows proper security hygiene. So those are the fine points that they actually didn't tell you because it's a billboard one, but it's all magic. Like there's just no, <laughs> it, there's no sensible way to actually implement that at the enterprise level. You're throwing one complex system at another complex system. It's bound to have 
failure points, you know, and security is all about, you know, bolting down your failure points. So if you put in this AI security and all of a sudden the enterprise organizations will, you know, just kind of cleans up their hands and they're like, all right, we don't have to actually think about security anymore because we have an AI that thinks about it for us. <laughs> so they have their behavioral hygiene kind of goes down and all of a sudden they hire contractors and all these, you know, third party people, you know, they kind of skirt the fine lines on just password hygiene and enforcing multi-factor and all of a sudden one contractor has a vulnerability and a breach and either runs away with a lot of sensitive material or is that failure point that corrupts like a you know a computer network you know those are just cases that happen but it's usually when um, people just stop thinking about it and they don't enforce something they don't think take things seriously anymore or they don't make it kind of a habit when you stop educating your people around and say like, hey, here's our AI solution and here's the magic that'll take care of everything. Use your grandma's name as your password now. It's fine. That can have a lot of uh, kind of failure points that just get introduced because people get lazy. Mm. And that's when when I see these types of things, I'm like, well, it kind of has this double effect of, you know, you're exploiting essentially lack of knowledge. You're going into these pitches, you're you know, you're going into this meeting with executives and you sell them AI. That's what they want to hear because they don't want to think anymore. And then you also sell, sell them this fortress that'll just kind of absorb their lumbering enterprise architecture and just do it for them. And they don't look at the fine points and actually consider, you know, sensibly like, look, as an enterprise, we're a very complex system and there's a lot of dynamics. They never kind of question like, okay, how does this actually work and how are we actually going to implement this? What's the actual kind of implementation phase look like? And actually, how does this AI work? Like, you know, like what models does it use and what types of data does it need? Is it even proper to consider it a, an AI? Is it just a general machine learning model? People don't ask those questions. They kind of just take it in and absorb it. Their CSO said, great, you know, signs it off. And all of a sudden they have this huge product. Hmm that they don't they have no idea what it is it's not all vaporware though i i mean i know i i've done shows like i did a show with pin drop security for example and pin drop security mm -hmm. does security for voice interfaces or phones or if you're operating mm -hmm. a call center uh they help to verify that the customer who is calling in is who the customer is and the product makes mm -hmm. complete sense uh, I didn't know what Pindrop did until I studied it. So some of these other security companies, they can't all be vaporware. I mean, the ones... I agree, yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a really good case with them. I'm familiar with them. They're very specific on what they do. And they can tell you how it works. They can actually demo it. But they're also very focused, right? Security needs focus. It doesn't need a platform that you just throw a blanket on something. They're very kind of precise in what they do. They can elucidate it. They can actually explain kind of the um, we you know the problem statement. They can el elaborate on it and actually provide that solution. So that's a good thing. You cannot just bolt down everything with a platform, especially in the realm of cybersecurity. You have to have these point solutions that kind of come together. But also, you know, to be successful with pin drop security, people actually have to use it and be educated on it and know that this is you know a problem that might be affecting them. Correct. You know, it's all about actually the awareness around it as well. Yeah. How should a smart enterprise CIO or CTO be evaluating this technology? What should they be looking for? Should they figure out 
the vulnerabilities in their organization first and then find point solutions to secure those individual areas? What is this, What is a general strategy, if you're a CIO or a CTO, for purchasing, mm-hmm. quote, security software? So I would say get in you know, like get involved and understand the pain points of, you know, your business users, right? Like the people that work under you or work parallel to you or perpendicular to you, understand their pain points and why they don't use the things that are necessary, right? Like there's many cases where security professionals just ignore the common person, right? Like not everyone's thinking about just bolting down their laptop, going incognito and, you know, proxying all their, you know, information, you know, very securely, like people just don't think about those things. So understand where people might be ignorant, and then kind of offer them solutions and good principles to actually mitigate those things. You know, you can't just take, I don't think it's realistic to take eight hours in someone's day and just like reeducate them over and over about security and why it's important. You kind of have to introduce these hygienic things first, right? Like, don't do this, do this. And if you see this, like, you know, train yourself around it to be better. Because as a business user, this not only affects you the business's security, which is very, very important, but also your personal security, right? Like if you are compromised, there's a high chance that your personal email might also be compromised and your life is pretty much compromised from there. It's very important because they want to ensure that not only do you have a healthy business life, you also have a healthy personal life. So, you know, it impacts your business. So you have to kind of start from there, understand who these users are. Very few times do I see Security people actually hang out with regular old, you know, salespeople or marketing people or other engineers, right? They're in their own little world and they think everyone is probably doing this and they build a, they build an internal bias. So that's first, I think, what a CIO and a CTO has to do is just like go to the marketing people, you know, ask them, you know, what have they thought about, you know, have they ever received a phishing email and what would they do? And like just constantly test their behavior and understand when they just don't want to use the solutions that you think might really benefit them in a you know in a secure environment, right? They don't want to install and update antivirus software all the time. You know, they just want it done for them. So there are many solutions that pop up that actually offer like specific security, right? There's uh, cases where the SSOs have actually done a lot, right? Like an SSO is a very good blanket solution just for authentication, though, right? It mitigates a lot of the kind of uh, password management, uh, kind of remembering all these passwords and usernames and different domains and has abstracted that, but also offered as a byproduct really good security. And you have to train your users on just like why this is important and why it might be a little annoying to have multi-factor authentication, but this is, you know, what benefits you get. You kind of have to elaborate on this over and over sometimes, but that's just for authentication. There's other realms of just like, okay, like what information are you sharing with your customers? You know, if you're working for, let's say, a software as a service company that has access to sensitive data, there's a lot of hygiene that comes from just like what you share and what you don't share and what you obfuscate and don't obfuscate. Right. Like that's also something a CIO and CTO needs to kind of understand and educate their general uh, business population, I guess. In the high profile security breaches that have happened recently, Target, Equifax, Yahoo mm-hmm. come to mind. These companies were in the unfortunate situation of starting a comp they they were companies that may not have started as quote technology companies or not modern technology companies, but they had to evolve mm-hmm. in a time frame where 
policies and strategies and security ideas were very nascent and they built their infrastructure mm-hmm. in that environment. So yep. it, you know, it's, it's very easy to pass judgment on Target and Equifax and Yahoo, Yahoo particular, but, um, yeah. and I do, I do somewhat pass judgment, especially as a victim of <laughs> all of these, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I feel some sense of sympathy for them. You know, they've got the, their company swells at a certain point and then they get brain drain as technology world mm-hmm. kind of leaves them behind. Amazon destroys them. Yeah. <laughs> What's the way to adjudicate these cases? As you know, we're probably because you know it's, we're not going to. I think it's just these cases you saw. Just people might have gotten lazy on the development side, or they just didn't think about everything all at once. Like again, these are complex systems. I've seen many enterprises with like fifty different internal apps stitched by Active Directory, and you know, like there's just one failure point, like just asking for it, right? Like they're just the way things have been d- done, and there's kind of a tension, right? Like with the, you know, engineering cycles and kind of application security cycles, you don't want, you want to be secure, but you don't want to be so secure where you're not actually developing anything, right? Like that's kind of like a hostile immunity all, all of a sudden. So there's this constant tension of like, we need to iterate and we need to deploy apps as fast as possible. But, you know, like we also need to make sure they're secure. And that's such a kind of trade-off because it might take quite a bit of time to actually pen test an application or actually run through a checklist and it's all this bureaucracy. So some people might actually just try to avoid that or sometimes it's just you you miss it, right? This is a complex system, right? And things are constantly changing. I, I know with the Equifax breach, there was a framework, Apache Stress, that was, was not updated. And like, how do you manage all these things? If you look at you know, most applications, there's so many third-party packages. If you look at, you know, just a website, there's so many third-party libraries. Things are constantly changing and updating. There might be a vulnerability that pops up in a runtime tomorrow and, like, you have to go pick up your kids at school, right? Like, there's so many things within life that just, like, come and conflict with uh, just thinking about security all the time. So with these organizations, like a Target or Equifax, like, they might not have the engineering resources or... They might not have the internal resources to prioritize that. There's other things they had to prioritize. And all of a sudden, they had a really acute disaster, right? And just like any natural disaster, you know, there's probably places where, you know, they've built up according to their economy and, you know, things that prioritize and grow their economy. But all of a sudden, a disaster comes through. And all of, how do you account for these things all of a sudden, just in, in a very short amount of time? So cybersecurity is that evolved because things can happen overnight you know just one couple minutes everything could be just uh, compromised you could have a, a leak of you know raw text passwords you know two billion rows to a computer is not that much actually so it's very easy to kind of just run away with information so i i sympathize with these companies because it's just it might have been the last thing on their mind and then they get blamed for it because it should have been the first thing on their mind. But, oh, you also have to build good products and you also have to prioritize your growth, your year by year growth and quarter over quarter growth. And you also have to do these other things. So if security gets in the way of that, then, I mean, it shouldn't, right? So it's just kind of a misunderstanding of how complex a modern enterprise is now. Now that we have painted a picture for that modern enterprise, you started a company earlier this year called Keyless. Explain what Keyless yeah. does. 
So Keyless is kind of a reaction. It's more of started as a reaction to just the world of authentication. And it was me uh, while I was at New Relic actually talking to people that are in sales and marketing and in the very non-technical roles, some of the you know engineering team up in Portland just around what do you hate about authentication? I know it's a stupid, simple thing, but it's the doorway to everything, right? It's the first point of entry. That door could be really secure or too secure, where there were many cases where people were locked out of their machine, they couldn't access things, they wasted a day or a week, or they were abroad, and they probably got nothing done because they were just completely locked out. So I picked a really specific problem in security, cybersecurity. It wasn't just like the entire platform of sorts, and I, and I looked at the doorway where people have kind of been adding more locks to the door, right? They've been adding, uh, you know, the multi-factor, just like a deadbolt. Uh, they've been adding other things, you know, uh, via SMS or push notification. There's many ways to increase security that doorway. But what happens when you lose or forget that key, right? There's many instances where a password reset is actually one of the biggest vulnerabilities where, every day I actually get a, you know, this is funny, I get an email for my WordPress site asking me to reset my password because someone asked for a password reset. Now, if I happen to click on that link, I would authorize that reset and things fall apart from there. So many times an actual reset is actually the vulnerability. Um, but why is that a vulnerability? Because you, only you, then you are presented with the dialogue to reset the password. Yes, but I would authorize that sort of unique code so many password resets actually have a token to actually say, okay, like if you click on this link, the internal, the server will actually say, okay, time to reset the password. And that link becomes authorized to actually reset it. Mm. So someone can go in and say, okay, now time to use my name as the password. And now I'm locked out of my thing. And worse, uh, someone else has access to my WordPress site because they just reset their password to something they want. So the person who is resetting the password, they get the token identifier, even though you get the email they do they get the, they have access to that token the token is actually a res, as sent back as a response from the wordpress server wow so they know what that is <laughs> yeah it's an it's archaic but this this happens but the other point in authentication is especially with the multi-factor situations people were losing their phones and people were losing those key dongles and they were locked out just indefinitely and it was really annoying and trying to reprove to everyone that this is me uh this is kind of you know, this is my identity. I need to kind of reconfigure everything so the actual SSO trusts me again, right? There was a huge pain point. You might, and I thought about it as an engineer. I was like, why? It's not that bad, right? Like, it's just you've lost your phone. You got to do this. But like for some people, like this really disturbed their lives. Like they hated doing it. And there are cases where people would try to avoid the SSO. They would try to just go to the domain and see if they could just still log in with their old credentials. There are certain, you know, domains like Salesforce where you could do that with the way it was configured and it just was really concerning, right? So I kind of went into their shoes and I was like, well, what do you hate about the situation you're in right now, this authentication situation? I know it's dumb again, but they were like, I just hate having to multi-factor. I want to just kind of go in and just have the multi-factor just handle itself. So that's where I thought of like keyless. I was like, you can do this with your car. You have keyless entry and you know, getting a little more technical, uh, if if anyone's familiar with YubiKeys, right, those little USB keys, they actually use a really uh, strong protocol called U2F. And that's kind of a handshake that an application can do on the web with this hardware device. 
It's also an open protocol. It's well documented. So I took this protocol and I made uh, uh, what I call it. It's, it's a Chrome extension, the Keyless extension that you know works with Gmail, works with Facebook, works with Okta, and it does that handshake for you. And it was just kind of a simple reaction to just like, does this make your life easier? And it did, you know, for a lot of people, they're just like, yeah, I have keyless entry. And like my laptop is kind of like that device, you know, my work laptop is that device that provides Mm. that extra security. It's kind of is that second Mm. factor. Now, people argue that isn't the point of multi-factor. So like, what if your laptop gets compromised? Well, that's another problem, Mm. right? Not something that, again, my philosophy on security is pick one really direct problem and solve that. And then other problems, there's going to be other solutions that solve that. So with laptop security, I mean, if your laptop is compromised, you know, if you have a malicious app on your laptop, uh, you're, I mean, I can just wait for you to log in and hijack your session. I can just wait for you to do that as a malicious app. There's pretty much, I have ownership of your identity from there. Now, what you have to probably consider then is how do you stop that? That's not something Keyless will do. Yeah, right. you know, that's not something that, you know, many other solutions will do. But there are solutions out there, you know, antivirus software. There's, there's a lot of solutions out there that will help mitigate that. But there's also hygienic things that will mitigate that. Don't download that Flash DMG that, you know, was triggered by a redirect. Maybe just don't do that. There's a lot of other programs, games or anything that you might just want to consider like, what are they doing in the background? Maybe ask someone, maybe ask a security professional. So it also takes the inverse. So for regular people to comfortably go up to the security professional and say, like, should I download this, you know, random game off the Internet? Could it be bad? <laughs> you know, could it have a keylogger? Could it, you know, inject some sort of other malware? You know, what could it be doing? So these are questions people should be asking. You know, they're the people that are in the security industry and they can freely ask them. But again, it's 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 considering kind of other cybersecurity is a realm of problems. You can really solve one problem well, and then you can rely on a cohesive set of solutions to solve the complete, you know, umbrella of problems. So if someone stole my laptop and said, okay, like your operating system password's really weak, well, that's not something Keyless was meant to solve. Right. You know, that's just my hygiene. Right. So, so to, <laughs> to to clarify for people, you're you're basically giving people the ability to log in in a two-factor authentic typical situation where they would have to two-factor authenticate mm-hmm. from uh, you know if they're logging in via browser mm-hmm. you're giving them the ability to skip that second factor and the reason you're doing that is because most of the bad actors who would be trying to attack your who would be trying to log in would be logging in remotely. So if you just in, if you install this browser extension on your specific browser instance, you use the YubiKey protocol. So you are essentially automating the 2FA only from your browser when you're Absolutely. when you're logged into your operating system, so that you know you don't you specifically don't have to go through the pain of 2FA on. Any you could, this could be applicable to any of the times where you have to use two FA on your browser, which for me is like two or three times a day probably, and it's a lot of wasted time, and it definitely adds up to a lot of wasted time because you know the 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 person who's hacking you they are not going to have the browser extension, or if they do have the browser extension, they're not going to have it authenticated. Mm-hmm. So it makes complete sense to me. So 
are there any added vulnerabilities? I mean, is I guess I guess it's it just is if somebody logs into if somebody has your operating system password, they can log into your operating mm-hmm. system. I guess that's the main vulnerability. So, what were some of the engineering challenges in building Keyless? So, the engineering challenge challenges were really just around um, working with the U2F library, the JavaScript library, understanding that, and actually understanding how the handshake is consumed. So, I want to add that. U2F is a very strong protocol. It's stronger than that six-digit token that you get. It's remarkably stronger than that. And there's cases where that six-digit token, you know, just it's vulnerable. Uh, U2F is this. By the way, the six-digit token you're talking about when I when I try when I do 2FA and and Twilio mm-hmm. sends me some little six. Well, it's not Twilio. I mean, it's it's the whatever the 2FA authenticator uh, provider is. It sends me like. Log in with two five three four nine six, yeah, yeah, and just that. like that, you're saying that that is more vulnerable. That is less safe than the UBI protocol. Your BF, uh, yeah, not U2F U2. is just a, just a much stronger handshake. So yeah, that that has cases where it's uh, been compromised, and that's where YubiKey with their protocol is really kind of advancing the frontier, right? Like that USB key that they give you that you can plug in in a laptop or any laptop is just it'll it'll authenticate with that handshake now again keyless is meant to be built as you know it's an extension that sits in your browser so your device will be the authenticator and again the reason i built this was because i had a YubiKey and i lost it and it's very small like those it's the size of like half your pinky and Again, the problem with the doorway is if you lose one of those keys, you're locked out. And I spent $50 on a YubiKey, and uh, I had one for Gmail. I was using it, and I lost it, so I was locked out. And reproving myself was you know, quite easy because I had backup authentication, but it was just so annoying because $50 just kind of just disappeared, one. But then I thought about it. I was like, well, what if other people have the same sort of you know, something happened to them where they just lose it or someone steals it, right? Like this something you have being an authentication measure, it's very easy to steal a small device versus a big device. So stealing a laptop is more difficult than stealing your phone or your little YubiKey. So I was like, well, why shouldn't the actual laptop itself have the ability, you know, your work laptop should have the ability to be the something you have and you get two byproducts is just it's faster because the handshake can happen in an automated way. And you're not worried about losing this other factor all of a sudden, right? It's it's you're not going to lose your YubiKey and all of a sudden you're locked out because those things are small. And, you know, I give them a lot of credit for like what they've built and they're they're very secure and everything. But those things are just so damn small that I just lost it. Just I think it was on a BART train. And that was concerning because now someone else has my YubiKey and they would have to kind of correlate it to maybe my, you know, identity and everything. But think of it, think about this in work situations where let's say I'm a contractor working at a pharmaceutical company and let's say one of the project managers is using a YubiKey, authenticating everything. And here's a very simple password, but a YubiKey, right? All I have to do is steal that YubiKey and it's so small. I can just unplug it from his laptop when he's not looking. And from there, I can just authenticate. And that's where things will fall apart. So the something you have really has to be robust as well, right? It's the, the, the something you are, you know, the biometric signatures are very hard to mimic. 
you know, there are extreme cases where someone took a fingerprint and actually can authenticate somewhere else. It's rare. I know there's cases of it and it makes a great story. But the way MFA has evolved is we're relying on phones and keys or dongles. And those things are, I mean, they're easily stolen, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Who are you selling this to? Is this to the consumer or to enterprise? So the keyless extension is free. It's for everyone. And that's also as a reaction to the security community because the common person needs to be secure. And the keyless extension, um, I mean, it's very simple handshake. I don't know the people that install it because, you know, that would be contrary to having security, right? Like, it's just go ahead and install it. It's free. It works on Gmail. I mean, if you're going to authenticate one thing, just do it with Gmail. Your email is very sensitive. It it is kind of that main failure point. There's also your social media account, Facebook, which could be, you know, another one. So the extension is just out for everyone. What we have been doing, though, is selling to enterprises with their SSO. So if they use Okta, which we partnered with Okta very closely, and we're trying to bring enterprises out of Active Directory. And the reason being is they build a lot of internal apps that connect to Active Directory, and they have a lot of moving parts when it comes to personnel. So they have, uh, let's say, one part of the organization shift to another part of the organization within, you know, Fortune 100, or they bring in contractors and consultants. And that's usually what happens with uh, these failure points is someone who's transient just comes in and leaves, right? And either they maliciously do something or most of the time it's accidental, right? Like they get compromised accidentally. They happen to work with this Fortune 100 at some point. And again, that it starts falling apart from there. So the actual systemic kind of solution, we've been bundling it with uh, an SSO saying, look, we understand behaviorally people are going to hate using MFA. We have solved this problem. And the convenient thing about, you know, us is we can also enforce a device. So a really big problem in the enterprise is controlling BYOD because the thing is people bring in their own phones, sometimes their own laptops, they install software, they authorize, you know, other sort of web services on that browser of their personal device. With Keyless, there's been, you know, we've had a lot of traction when it comes to actually helping enterprises with controlling device and devices and endpoints. And that's just as a byproduct of just living in that device, right? With a YubiKey or another dongle, you can actually authenticate many other devices, right? It's just plain, simple. I can have one YubiKey authenticate multiple laptops, a lot of the enterprise organizations are like, we don't want that. This is your work laptop, and this is what it will do, and this is your only work laptop. How do we enforce that? So we've really been helping uh, a couple Fortune 100s actually implement this. And that is you know, beyond the SSO. That's more at the session level. That's more kind of like a custom sort of uh, agreement. And that's where I, I think you know, that's where our revenue stream is coming from. For the consumer adoption, I hope people just use something. You know, you don't have to use Keyless. Use some sort of uh, solution that actually protects one of your important services, whether it be Gmail, Facebook, doesn't matter. Really adopt it. I recommend Keyless because it just makes it easy. Just you don't have to think about it. But in the very least, you know, use like an Authy. Um, I have Authy for other services that don't have U2F. U2F isn't, you know, it's a very strong protocol, but it hasn't been widely adopted yet. Uh, I hope it gets widely adopted, uh, especially, you know, by the banks, by the other services, by cloud providers like AWS. 
you know, I, I'd, I'd really appreciate that because it's just so much stronger. But in any case, just use another factor because I bet many, the majority of people have simple passwords and just to remember and it's been compromised one, one time or the other. You also run MethodMI with Shalin mm-hmm. and it's been it's been about a year since I spoke to Shalin for the first time uh, about his plans to talk more publicly about ad fraud and and since mm-hmm. in that in that last year you and he have made really significant progress on combating ad fraud. It's been really fun to watch and uh, interviewing you guys and covering you guys on a topic that does not receive enough coverage has been really fun. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to see that you are actually running two businesses at once. Tell me about mm-hmm. the pros and cons of running both Method MI and Keyless. So yeah, great question. I think um, Method has been more of the involvement just because there's just ad tech is so big, right? I'm not saying like cybersecurity isn't big either. Like they're both very big industries. There's been a lot of kind of immediately solvable problems in ad tech. And we have a lot of clients, you know, coming in from method MI, right? Like there's, that's the bread and butter kind of scenario. And Keyless actually started way before method, right? It was started as a side project. And the only thing I've been doing with Keyless, and again, this is kind of, again, my philosophy on security is to solve that one problem really well. And it happens to be simple, right? So I haven't had to put so much time commitment into Keyless as much because I built a solution and that solution helps these customers and these uh, individuals very well. And that's that. Where that might go in the future, I don't know. Because one, Method you know, has a lot of business. We're getting a lot of traction. There are a lot of problems to solve in ad tech, not only from the human side, but also the technological side. So it's kind of this interesting mix because ad tech and cybersecurity are kind of merging together. Like a lot of issues actually stem from the ad tech stack, right? Like where you have third-party JavaScript, you have third-party ads that are just loading everywhere. And now you have cases where there's something called crypto jacking, where you can load a third-party script that starts mining cryptocurrency using your host device. There's a lot of you know issues surfacing within the ad tech stack. And a lot of malware is actually distributed through advertising. So a lot of the key loggers, a lot of the malicious apps are actually distributed through malicious advertising. So it's a good kind of like, I guess, synthesis of these two worlds. And, you know, with my background in keyless and with my background in monitoring and, you know, learning everything about ad tech, it's kind of this good kind of a collection and multimodal thinking you can actually uh, enable when it comes to you know the future of keyless i don't know i think it's been a very kind of direct sell right like we work with an sso i didn't go out and build an sso because that would take way too much time so i found a really good partner in okta and i was like here's my authentication here's my factor and you bundle this in with your sso and that's that and they had you know they, they were they're very uh gracious about it and they're like yeah we kind of love this and you know this is going to solve these sets of problems for our sets of customers in this domain right it's not like an overarching like everyone's got to move to keyless like this is not going to happen so it's been very kind of uh i I guess it's been very manageable right because it's very people i know people uh that have two or three companies and it can be overwhelming because they're trying to build a platform here and a platform there and from a business and operational perspective 
I look at method as just like, we're going to need a lot of resources to solve these diverse sets of problems. And, you know, it's my day to day. Keyless is more just like, hey, I've decided that this is going to be a channel sell. And these are the things we do and nothing more. You know, there's no consulting service that we're offering, although I'd love to just give free educational talks like I don't, you know, it's just this is what Keyless does. It's an extension. It works with Okta. It works with Gmail, Facebook, etc. And that's that. It's kind of just like a period on it. It could evolve, but who knows? And I'm always going to kind of consider like how much time investment do I want to make and also have like a social life and everything. Um, that That's really kind of me kind of, uh, you know, being situated in the Bay Area, growing up in the Bay Area, having family that are entrepreneurs and really being realistic about, okay, if you want to do this and this, like, can you modulate it in a way where you can give uh, you know a, a manageable time commitment, and the way you do that is just from the operational and business process side. How are you going to sell it? You know, are you going to actively go and get on sales calls and demo it, and you know, are you going to keep building on it and build you know bells and whistles? No, and that's just a decision I made, and I think it's a really good decision because I've never seen someone build two operational businesses and then be happy uh yeah i completely hear where you're coming from <laughs> i think you're right uh okay well praneet continued success with keyless continued success with method i'm sure we'll be talking again in the future absolutely thank you so much wow